Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to talk about tuning, which is basically just an excuse for me to rant about just intonation for like an hour or so. But hopefully we'll also talk about other things. We'll see. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I'm like so in the woods here. I have no real <laughs> hard or fast opinions about tuning, but I'm sure by yeah. the end of this hour, <laughs> I will be vigilant in my opinions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm going for, is to convert everyone to my beliefs, because that's how you do music theory. Yes. So, I mean, let's start out by laying out those beliefs so that everyone can say that's ridiculous and then you can sway them yeah. over the next hour. Yeah. So my, my primary belief is that all tuning is bad and music should never be tuned. That's not true. I guess like it's like I have become increasingly convinced over the last few years that there's an undue emphasis placed on just intonation as the correct tuning system as opposed to a tuning philosophy and that it's sort of it replicates some not great social attitudes in other ways and i think is worth challenging and worth pushing back on even though i do like just intonation as a tuning philosophy every time you say just intonation i just think of like a guy named justin tonation you know <laughs> That sounds like an 80s band. Y yes, <laughs> absolutely. Before we get too into the nitty gritty, how would you describe just intonation to those who don't know it? Yeah, that's probably a good place to start. Just intonation is basically the idea that consonants, like musical consonants, is based on simple frequency ratios. So like when we talk about really consonant intervals, like the octave, the octave is two pitches, one of which has a frequency that is exactly twice the frequency of the other. So if one of them is playing at 100 hertz, then the octave above it is 200 hertz. So that's, and you know, you have other ones like the perfect fifth is a ratio of two to three, the perfect fourth is three to four, the major third is four to five, the minor third is five to six. And so you have all of these different ratios that define intervals and when those ratios are small and simple and reducible, those are consonant notes. Those are the notes that sound good. That sort of framework is what's often used with like string instruments for deciding yeah. what your your violins, your cellos, what each string is generally tuned to is based around these intervals. Yeah. These, yeah. These are sort of the, in a lot of ways, like the fundamental intervals in Western music. Yeah. And like just intonation as a philosophy, is extremely old in the Western tradition. Like, it dates back at least to Pythagoras. So we're, we're talking thousands of years that this has sort of been the guiding principle. And, like, there, there are a lot of reasons that I do like it. Like, I think, first of all, and I think one of the big appeals is that the math is pretty, right? Like, yeah. you don't have to throw around, like, square roots. You don't have to do, like, all these weird calculations. It's You have very simple numbers, and they fit together in very elegant ways. Sort of. I'll come back to that point. Um, uh, and so, like I, like, I really like that as someone who is very mathematically inclined. And I think yeah. a lot of tuning theorists are mathematically inclined. I think that that is one of the areas of music theory that tends to attract 
people who like, like I will, I think I have on this podcast before described myself as a mathematician who accidentally went to music school. Yeah. Those are the sorts of people that tuning theory attracts. So like, I get it. <laughs> the other side of it that I, like, I do want to recognize is that tuning theory, that just intonation rather is based on actual existing natural phenomena. Specifically, it's based on the harmonic series where like you, you mentioned like playing strings. And if you yeah. play, if you pluck a string on a guitar, uh, it's going to vibrate at the frequency that that string is. But it's also going to vibrate at various harmonics, which are yeah. multiples of that uh, fundamental frequency. So again, if that string is 100 hertz, then without adding any other note, you're also going to get frequencies at like 200 hertz, 300 hertz, 400 and so on. The science and math behind that is how you yeah. can very easily tune a guitar or a bass by ear using harmonics. To ground yeah. it a little for people uh, that are not mathematicians um, who yeah. stumbled into music, like when you are, you know, when someone picks up a guitar and tunes it by playing harmonics on the different strings and pulling them to each other, all of that is, you know, a result of this framework. Or maybe not a result of, but like yeah yeah based on certainly it's kind of a chicken and egg thing right they are related yeah uh, and it's also it's also where timbre comes from like this is why when you pluck a guitar string that is playing the note middle c it sounds different from playing that note on a piano or a trumpet or anything is because the harmonic series of that particular instrument will be slightly different will emphasize different harmonics and which ones are emphasized will shape what it sounds like. And so if there's more higher harmonics, the tone will sound brighter. If there's more, I don't know, I, there's a lot of complicated stuff to that. Like, I don't want to get too off into that because I'm going to get really distracted very quickly. I didn't realize that. That's really cool. That is fundamentally how, there are other aspects of it, to be clear. Yeah. There's onsets, there's decays, there's stuff like that. But like the, the bulk of timbre is harmonics and in harmonics for instance you know that's why if you play a snare drum you don't hear a pitch like nothing that you could sing back as a recognizable note is because so many of the frequencies it generates are not part of any recognizable harmonic series with each other huh. and yeah most drums this is what like when we say unpitched percussion that's what we mean is that there's no discernible harmonic series to the overtones that's really neat yeah and so like again that that is Another reason that I think just intonation is really appealing is like it feels based on these very natural things. And yeah. there's also, you know, you can very easily argue that, you know, we say the octave is a one to two ratio. And part of what that means is if, again, you have a note at 100 hertz and a note at 200 hertz, every frequency in the higher notes harmonic series will also be in the lower notes harmonic series. So you know, if you have 100 to 200, they will both also have a 400 floating above them. And they will also have an 800 floating above them and a 600. And you can say that they are very well aligned uh, as long as they're in phase. Like this is one of the complications of this to sort of basic versions of what's called coincidence theory, which is basically this idea that that's why notes sound good together is because their peaks and valleys line up. And the more sort of places where they coincide, the better it'll sound. And that gets complicated because yeah. those pitches will very quickly get out of phase. And it, as soon as that happens, you don't get those nice peak and trough uh, alignments. The principle still works. And it's also how your ear does pitch identification and does, that's how you hear, is that your ear detects 
different frequencies within the sound wave uh, at different places in the, the cochlea. What's the one that is like has all the hair cells? I I have no idea. I don't know. I'm just going to say cochlea and I'm going to be wrong. And someone who knows better is going to tell me that I'm wrong at some point. Uh, or I might be right. I believe the technical term is the hairy ear hole. Yeah, it has the the cilia, the the, yeah. the hair cells. Yeah. Um, and each of those is sort of picking up a fairly narrow range of frequencies. And so basically, when you play something with a bunch of overtones, each of those will pick up whether or not that's or the extent to which that's a part of the sound wave. And so it is it is decomposing. Your ears is doing a sort of like Fourier transform, if you're familiar with those. That's a bit of a hand wave as to what your ear is actually doing. But it more or less, it's fair to say that that's basically a Fourier transform, just not quite mathematically. But like, again, so there's a lot of a lot of appeal to the idea that because you have this very real physical thing that happens that you can tie these concepts to to say that this is just what consonance is. Yeah. And there are conflicting studies about whether or not this is innate to human consonance perception. Like there's a study they did with an uncontacted tribe in the Amazon called the Chimane people, where they went to them and played notes that were supposed to be consonant versus notes that were supposed to be dissonant according to these theories and according to sort of Western traditions. And were like, which of these sounds better? And they didn't really have a preference. Uh, there are also both methodological and ethical objections to that study. And there are also other studies that point in different directions. It's very complicated. It's very hard to like disentangle culture from psychology and this sort of thing and physiology and this sort of thing. I think something also, even within the same culture, something that's often heavily implied when we talk about this sort of like consonance and stuff like that is that the idea of like like a a positive use value to consonants the idea that yeah. consonant yeah. is consonants is by default you know something to strive for and achieve for when there is even within stuff that you know is broadly in the quote unquote western canon and stuff that operates within these frameworks there is so so many examples of music that seeks out dissonance, yeah. right? Yeah, like there's there's a reason that like music theorists will not shut up about 12-tone serialism despite the fact that it was a thing like five guys did for a couple decades. It was more than five, but like... I know nobody who's a, into 12-tone serialism. <laughs> like it's it's this whole thing where like, you know, it's a really interesting question in terms of like, what yeah. is dissonance? What is consonant? Is consonance valuable? Uh, and there's sort of this assumption from the etymology of consonants uh, that th it is supposed to be the good one and dissonance yeah. is bad. But then traditions evolve around that. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, is also the conflation of consonants as a technical mathematical term which yep. just intonation unambiguously defines, I think, because it has been defined to define it. Like that is that is what we say consonance is. It is is the just intonation ones. And so it's a circular sort of thing. Uh, but then there's consonance in the people like the way it sounds yeah. sense. And that's much more complicated. Really basic example is that the dominant seventh chord is the dissonance in 
sort of traditional Western harmony. Like it has the tritone, it has the the minor seventh. Yeah, like a lot of it is it gets sounds it sounds on edge, and it's supposed to want to resolve. But then it's also in blues often used as the one chord. Yeah, and it's fine. Like that's not that doesn't sound unstable to someone who is used to listening to the blues. And so the cultural value of that consonance or dissonance is different depending on what you want to get out of it and what you're what you're used to and what you're looking for. And that I think is sort of the core of my issue with this overemphasis on just intonation is that like it it is unclear, I think, from the research whether or not these simple frequency ratios are fundamental to human consonance perception. But it is extremely clear that they are not fundamental to human consonance practice. Yeah. Like, so many musical traditions don't use just intonation, and so many musical traditions don't want to and aren't even trying to approximate. Like, the famous example is gamelan. Like, gamelan music, uh, it's an Indonesian folk ensemble. I don't know if folk is correct. Uh, but it's an Indonesian, basically, percussion ensemble. But with, like, tuned percussion, not, like, the unpitched percussion we were talking about earlier. And they will traditionally, like, they are very precise in the way that things are tuned. Like, that they're very careful. Like, that's not haphazard. But also, octaves are generally not an exact two-to-one ratio. The intervals mostly don't map to anything resembling just intonation ratios. They differ by octave. So the thing that's, you know two scale steps up in the lower octave might be smaller than the same two scale steps above the same pitch in the upper octave. I've talked before about like the concept of ombak, uh, which is an Indonesian, uh, a gamelan thing in, yeah, I think it's specifically Balinese gamelan, but where specifically you have two instruments that are intentionally tuned a consistent number of hertz apart, like pairs of instruments of the same type. And they something like, you know, say six hertz apart. Yeah. And so you get this like six times per second beating effect between the two as if they play in unison. And that's, you know, something that I as a Western trained musician would hear and be like, one of those instruments is out of tune. But it's not. It's not supposed to be in sync with each other. There's supposed to be this slightly different thing so that you get this beating because that's considered beautiful and considered good. I think this is one of those like difficult topics to talk about because it presses yeah. up against the very limitations of our language and the way that we put, you know, weight and value into language. Like the entire idea of at a glance, if you're not, if you don't, yeah. you know, you're not a nerd who spends too much time thinking about this stuff. Like the idea of an instrument being in tune or out of tune seems to be yeah. you know uh, a sort of agnostic statement right it, yeah. it seems like there's no value on that statement but then when when we you know you look into more in the world even the yeah. question of like you're talking about that phenomenon that is something that we would describe yeah. as out of tune but it's difficult to describe it as in tune because that's not that's not kind of accurately what it is but it's also not what it isn't yeah it's i think it's it's thought of as agnostic and it's also thought of as intuitive right like it should be very obvious when a yes. musician or when an instrument is out of tune like i remember back in college my friend yeah one of his juries uh he was performing and he was a guitarist 
And partway through one of the songs, he bumped one of the tuning pegs and had to figure out how to get through the rest of the song with one of his strings about yeah. a quarter tone off. And it was very clear to me, as someone who knew what he was trying to do, yeah. that his instrument was out of tune. But like, if you had never heard rock guitar before, if you had never were completely unfamiliar with that tradition, if you were coming from a completely different tradition where more microtonal adjustments were common, maybe you'd hear that and go like, oh, that's an interesting choice. Like, you know, it's really hard to say. And yes, so I think a yeah. lot of it, again, comes down to, like you're saying, the complications of language and specifically this idea that like consonants in the mathematical sense and consonants in the value judgment sense are conflated. And so these things that we can define and do formulas to become proxies for aesthetic judgments in ways that I don't think reflect the broad range of human practice around music. But they do reflect what Pythagoras thought was good. And that's, I think, a lot of the thing for this as well, is that just intonation was the central tuning philosophy of the Enlightenment. And so there was this big push yeah. towards nailing everything down into natural laws and defining what the correct versions of things were. And just intonation is really appealing from that perspective. And so most of the sort of tuning philosophy of that era took as its basis that just intonation was the right way to define intervals and then tried to work around the problems that creates rather than looking at it, noticing that it creates a lot of problems and being like, huh, maybe this isn't perfect. Again, because tuning theory is so dominated by very mathematically inclined people, I think that tendency has sort of echoed down throughout the centuries to sort of view this one as the natural laws of consonants and everything else as ways to do stuff with it and ways to fix the problems with the natural laws, which, you know, you kind of have to do sometimes. Like you look at gravity, they got to a point where like gravity didn't work. And so they had to figure out a new version of gravity. Uh, that's a very, very basic summary of uh, Einstein's principle of general relativity. But, you know, basically just made up a new gravity because <laughs> gravity was broke, um, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on the history there, physicists, but... Yeah, well, I think, like so many, you, you know, this is bumping up against, uh, or it's not bumping up, it's like plowing right yeah. through a favorite <laughs> Ghost Notes topic, which yeah. is just, like, like how so much of the way that we perceive and interact with music is so rooted in, in that Enlightenment thought and that Enlightenment approach... Yeah to music theory, yeah. which to be clear, there's a lot of really cool, important stuff that came out yeah. of that. Like, I don't want people to think we're outright condemning enlightenment music theory because it is the basis of a lot of, you know, a lot of really interesting yeah. stuff, but it's, it's so, it so comes down to that thing that we rant about all of the time where it's trying to treat music like a science it's yeah. in an interesting place with this because you can and people do and should treat sound like a science, right? Yeah, that's that's the big yeah. thing for me is just, just intonation and these simple frequency ratios and the results they have on your ear and on sound waves. Those are facts. Yes. Those are facts of sound. Yeah. But sound is not music. Sound is sound. Yes. 
it can be very sort of tempting, especially when you're approaching it with the sort of philosophical basis that they have to to yeah. conflate the two to be like, well, sound is not music, but music is sound. So therefore, the laws of sound must yeah. apply to music. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, and they, they do, do, but in in a yeah. like physical way, but not in any yeah. sort of value quantitative way yeah or qualitative not, rather they are not cultural laws and music is a cultural object yes that's a great and way of phrasing it the ideas around just intonation are really interesting like there's a reason i keep making videos about yeah it. like a lot of why i've been thinking about this recently is that i just did a video about like isaac newton's writings about music and that was very informed by just intonation that was a huge part of what he was doing because again enlightenment era yeah so like it made a lot of sense that that was what he was thinking. It's sort of, it's just, it's a red flag for me to see the idea that the absolute objective, correct way to do art yeah. happens to be the one that the ancient Greeks figured out. <laughs> that seems like it should be yeah. more concerning to more people than it actually is. And again, like, I think, I think it's an interesting philosophy. I think the thing that I am pushing back on is the idea that it is a correct yeah. philosophy in any way that others are not. I think if we want to sort of expand a little bit more from here, yeah. I think what, I, what I'd like to go into is like, it's really interesting to see sort of the ramifications of this philosophy, because this is something where like, we've talked about yeah. this before about how, you know, fundamentally, basically all popular music is really not that different from it, each other, right? Like, yeah. like the difference between yeah. top 40 pop and death metal, kind of harmonically speaking, is not really yeah. that drastic. They're say they're using the same tuning systems. Um, they're using honestly a lot of the same song structure, instrumentation, stuff like that. Like they they are they are clearly different things. Yeah, they're different music. Like, but Death metal is closer yeah. to top 40 pop than it is to Gamelon, you know, like then I would agree that sort of thing is something where, you know, it's great that there's there is a lot of diversity in popular music, but there's so much that music can do that is just yeah. not really explored in popular music. And, you know, in the the, the Western tradition is still such uh it it still looms so much over yeah. all everything being made in popular music right now that you know there there are increasingly more and more people doing weird different stuff i mean you want to talk about music that doesn't put value on just intonation in the same way harsh noise music which is you know an, mm -hmm. an interesting exciting space right now like like noise music is something that a lot of people, uh, you, you know, and myself included, kind of see as it's it's one of the next sort of it, it's one of the interesting frontiers in music happening right now. And so much of noise music is operating fully outside of those frameworks, right? Yeah. I also like on the flip side of that, though, I think one of the things that really interests me about like modern popular music in the context of tuning yeah. is just how much space you can do with 12 tone equal temperament. Cause that's a lot of the thing for me is just so much of, again, you, you go back to like the 1600s and whatever, like there's so much 
so many people proposing so many different kinds of tuning because there are these fundamental problems with just intonation that they're trying to solve. And then sometime across the 1700s and into the 1800s, you settle into equal temperament. You know, it's not that no one else has done anything else since then, but like as a as a dominant tuning philosophy, it's remained pretty stable for a couple centuries now. And you've been able to do so many new things. Yeah. Like you look at Giant Steps is one of my favorite examples. Like you have to have this idea that these three pitches are all like equidistant yeah. from each other. Yeah. And that's, you can't do that without equal temperament. You can't go in that circle in the way that Giant Steps requires you to do in order to make the structure of the song work. And, you know, obviously like 12-tone serialism as well, I'd like... I don't tend to cite that one as much because, again, I don't think it's as culturally important <laughs> as Giant Steps. I mean, I will say, like, I think my understanding from people who know more about jazz culture than I am is that Giant Steps is a little bit overrated in terms of its cultural impact in that it's, like, kind of a meme more than it is, like, yeah. a hugely influential thing because it's, like, it's really interesting how hard it is, but it's not, you know... It's not the thing that a lot of jazz fans gravitate towards when they're trying to listen to jazz. And that's fine. But it's just like, I think it still has this place in the cultural conscience that you can do because of equal temperament. It's very interesting because like it, I mean, this is a, a whole diversion, but like it, it kind of like, it kind of like marked the end of bebop um, in a lot of ways yeah. because, because a lot of bebop was explorations within, you know, this tuning framework really because you know it's, yeah. it's it's born from charlie parker's experimentations with realizing that you can solo over chords um rather than yeah. over melody uh like over changes and you, you know like in a lot of ways giant steps represents the the final you know sort of like statement yeah. of that concept and yeah i mean that's that's a bit of a diversion but no, I, I don't think it is. Cause I like, I think, you know, like, like I said, giant steps itself is kind of like more of a meme, but like that is still that tonal flexibility that you get yeah. from equal temperament is so fundamental to so much of the language of bebop. Yeah. And it's just like throwing in like two fives all over the place, setting up all sorts of other notes at random, basically like, you know, not at random there, there's structure to it, yeah. but like, you can play a two five on any chord in any key, like, and it will sound fine. Whereas like you just, you can't do that if you're trying to work around equal temp, uh, work around just intonation rather. So like, there's just, there's so many options. And then again, like another, like in a slightly different direction and not really as related to equal temperament, but like the blues. Yeah. And we talk, we talk about like blue notes and the thing with blue notes is that they ex like, the definition of blue notes is very complicated and not super well agreed upon. Different people mean different things by it. But like broadly speaking, the general idea is these sort of microtonal bends to like in between pitches yeah. and getting, say, for instance, like halfway between the minor third and the major third is a common one. And like you have all of these different ideas of like pitches that are you, you can't even really... I mean, it's not that you can't define what they are. You can run them through like a spectrum analyzer and identify the the pitch if you want, but it's not the point. Yeah. Like it's not supposed to be, 
like if it's an E chord, like it's not supposed to be G or G sharp. It's supposed to be somewhere in between. Yeah. And like where exactly in between is also not the point. And that's going to fluctuate. Like there, there are ranges that you're going to bend more towards. But like the idea is that it's sort of evocatively playing around in that space. And it therefore isn't really doing either job. It's just sort of gesturing at both of them. That's that's an overly simplified version of Blue Notes for sure. But like, again, this, this sort of this idea that you can find things that sound beautiful in ways that are not in any meaningful way mathematically constant yeah. is, I think, a really important part of doing responsible tuning theory. Right now, I'm like in the middle of working on this big series about the history of the electric guitar solo. It's so interesting how many like, I mean, a lot of it is because it's based on the blues. But you you look at how sort of essential, especially in like a lot of the heavy psychedelic stuff, how essential bends are. And even in metal, you know, you look at like like Tony Iommi's whole shtick was bending to hit the notes because yeah. of his fingers um but that kind of birthed metal like the bend on the guitar is just such a like it's such a good example of this because it's so sort of like yeah clear and distinct and there's so many you you, you know so much yeah. life and color and vibrancy that comes from the bend yeah and like depending on style like there are I remember back at like college, teachers would encourage guitar students to like practice their bends with a tuner to like make sure they could bend in tune. Yeah. But there's also like a lot of times where like even if you are going to an in, I'm, I'm going to use the word in tune. Yeah. In a way that I, I assume people know what I mean. Not a value judgment. I'm just going to say that up front. But like to bend to an in tune note. But if you just do it slowly, you get this like little bend yeah <laughs> i was gonna try and find a different word but yeah bend uh you, you get this effect of like all of these intermediary notes that like you never really rest on but you get to hear all of them and it adds so much color and so much expressiveness to it like i'm working on right now a video about uh in the air tonight which will be out well before this episode is that's so much of the sound of the guitar there it's just really pretty slow bends huh like up into notes and then back down to notes. Uh, not that the guitar is a huge part of it, but it, it's an important part, even if it's not huge. But like when you have the guitar playing like these little fills in the middle, in the verse and whatever, like there's so much like, or whatever, like probably not exactly that, but you know what I is mean? Is that a Where technical it's just like term? Such a yeah, that, that's what we call it. Um, that's what they, they print that in textbooks. <laughs> Uh, very, very hard to spell. <laughs> That's really cool, though. I I actually had never really noticed that about the song. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say another song that, like, like is really interesting for sort of, you know, within a pop framework, breaking out of some of the uh, limitations of our tuning is Polly by Nirvana. Phenomenal sure. song. Uh, the story behind that song is Kurt Cobain goes to a pawn shop, picks up a guitar for 20 bucks and doesn't tune it and just plays the song with this slightly out of tune guitar. And I, I think a lot of like grunge and punk will often use kind of like 
slightly, again, quote unquote, out of tune stuff where the goal, you know, the reason why he does this for Polly is to create a song that that throws you and is sort of weird and uncomfortable and has has a like muddy you could even say grungy sound to it right and that's that's something that is it's something where the entire the entire artistic message of the song is underlined by the the usage of a tuning that like like you couldn't say what that tuning was you know if you if you had that guitar when it was recorded again you could you could do an analysis and say, oh, you know, this string is this many microtones up. This string is this many microtones down. But that's not like, like the goal is just specifically to have something that sounds yeah. off and kind of cheap. Right. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, there are also a lot of traditions that will use that same space, but in a much more deliberate way, like uh, Arabic and like Turkish makams are a huge example of this where. It's complicated to call them microtonal because that assumes that the primary tonality is the 12-tone one and then everything else is just variations of it. Uh, So I'm not going to use that word. But it is true that in those traditions, you have all so many more pitches per octave. And, you know, you don't necessarily use all of them, but you have a lot of choices. And like the... My understanding is that, like, for the most part, these days, that stuff is notated as if it is 24-tone equal temperament, where you have, like, basically the 12 notes per octave and then the half, like, the, the quarter tones in between them. But, like, even that is obscuring a lot of the minor nuances that go into, like, the exact pitch of a particular note. And so with a lot of that, like it does really matter. Like that small adjust, like what that small adjustment is. And again, yeah, a lot of that is not going to be something that you can do particularly interesting frequency ratio math. Yeah. But it is something that will turn out to create, it will create something that practitioners and fans of that particular style of music will interpret as beautiful. Like that's a lot of it is that, you know, it comes down to like what is what is considered beautiful. And I think a lot of that has to do with what tuning systems you're familiar with. And another place where language fails us is, you know, in stuff like in stuff like a lot of like harsh noise and grunge and yeah. stuff like that, there is a ugliness as a quality is considered beautiful yeah. in these cultural practices, right? Yeah. It's its own sort of like interesting thing where like you know, the reason why the tritone, you know, is the foundation of yeah. metal is specifically because it sort of, you know, offends a certain sensibility, right? And there's a there's yeah. a beauty that uh the cultural practice of yeah. metal finds in the quote unquote ugliness of the tritone. Yeah. No, I think in metal the, the tritone is not supposed to like you're not supposed to hear it and go like, ah, oh, that sounds so yeah. nice. You're supposed to hear it and be like, mm, that sounds good, you know? And it's a very different reaction. But I would say like that is that is beauty, right? Like that is still Yeah, it, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a form of beauty. When when we're so sort of stuck within 
subjective frameworks like like beautiful in tune things like that it can be really difficult to to talk about things because all of our language is loaded with assumptions yeah and i think is like maybe a useful framework for like consonants versus dissonance is the question of how important precision is mm. like you look at harsh noise and like there's there's an extent like a, a lot of thought goes into crafting like timbres yes. and sounds in that space i don't want to imply it doesn't but like there's an extent to which making adjustments, small adjustments will have small effects. Whereas in, like, if you're looking at like a perfectly tuned two to one octave, yeah, a relatively small adjustment can make that sound like garbage. Yeah. And, the, and so that because we are in a regime where precision matters, that makes it such that there is a sense of consonance to it. Whereas in spaces where it's not as, like, you know, even like a metal tritone, yeah. like if you play that and you just bend the string up a little bit, it's not going to sound that different yeah. from just playing a tritone. Uh, whereas, again, you know, if, if you play an octave and bend the string a little bit, like, you're making a choice there, buddy. But, like, that whole thing, I think, is maybe a way of extracting out some of the subjective value judgment of words like beauty. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But yeah, it's like I said, a lot of it is just, I think there are so many interesting ways to do tuning. And I think there are so many interesting philosophies of tuning. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should like move on from Justice yeah. Nation and actually talk about more of those. Cause I'm, I'm just hung up on this. I know. Absolutely. What are, we're already at yeah. 45 minutes of just intonations. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, and like I said, I, I think for me, a lot of my pushback here is against this idea that equal temperament is bad. Yeah. Like this is, this is a very sort of common thing in like tuning theory spaces is the idea that like equal temperament is a lazy compromise. I think again, there's just, this is, and it's not to say that equal temperament is inherently better as a system either, but it just, it has so many of its own applications. And like, this was a thing, like a while back, I did a video in response to Adam Neely's video about C flat. Uh, and one of my arguments there was when he did, like he did switch to just intonation and was like, you know, in that system, B is two major thirds above E flat and C flat is a major third below it. And those are fundamentally different frequencies and i was trying to make the argument that like okay that's true but if you play them in equal temperament does that matter and i got like this is not about adam adam was fine like as far as i know i didn't see any responses from adam that i would view as particularly disagreeable uh but like there's no 12 tone adam neely beef going I on i keep trying <laughs> and he keeps not responding <laughs> uh but no like i think like, definitely, like, some of the responses to that were, like, tuning theory fans being, like, mad at me. Like, oh, well, 12 tones, like, 12 tone doesn't believe this. They're just trying to be provocative. And it's like, but I, but I do, is the thing. Like, I think, you know, there's an extent to which it's, like, kind of cool and edgy to be, like, equal temperament is bad. Uh, because the perfect fifth is the two cents flat. The bigger issue is the major third is from just intonation about, I think it's like 14 cents sharp. 
Uh, ascent is 100th of a half step, just so that what I just said made any sense to anyone. And broadly speaking, the just noticeable difference that a human can perceive is generally considered to be about five to 10 cents. Uh, that's going to vary a lot by human and also varies by register. There's, yeah, just this, this response of like, oh, well, 12 tones just trying to like start a fight and like say this like provocative thing that's obviously not true. And it's just I, like, I don't think it's obviously not true that equal temperament is a valid way to define intervals. I don't think it's not true that equal temperament doesn't produce music that sounds yeah. good. And I think that like, I feel like that shouldn't be as controversial a stance as it seems to be among tuning theorists. <laughs> I think maybe your problems that you're talking to too many tuning theorists. <laughs> no offense to any tuning theorists listening to this episode. Yeah, it it is a, a complicated community. Uh, like that, there is certainly an extent to which that's part of it. But you're enlightening me on beefs that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. it's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think a lot of it is because so many, so much of tuning theory is attracts so many mathematical people. Yeah. Is that like there's a really strong tendency to try and find the answer yes. and to try and solve the problem. And but no, like, oh, I'm just getting back into the same just intonation complaints. <laughs> I have very strong feelings about this. Like I said, equal temperament is one that I really think deserves more respect than it gets uh, and winds up being sort of in a lot of ways simultaneously like the black sheep of the tuning theory world, but also the tuning system that pretty much everyone in Western popular music uses. <laughs> and like, it, it feels hard for me to argue that that makes it a bad system. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things with you, and I'm often like this in music too, <laughs> is that like it's not it's not about something being a good system or a bad system. It's about people yeah. acting as though there is one right system, right? Like I yeah. think there are I think there are yeah. plenty of good systems, and there are millions of good ways that you can do music. But there is yeah. not a single right way to do music. And that's where, like, that that's where I get worked up is the, it, it's not, not really yeah. the idea of a, a, or even like, I don't even really, I, I don't love the idea of one system being better than another. I like the idea, things yeah. are different and there is, there is different purposes and values. Yeah, and it's better for certain yes, goals. Yeah, like different use there, cases. There are reasons why you would use different things. Like again, any system besides equal temperament basically can't produce giant steps. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Like you need that sort of that symmetry because it's fundamentally Coltrane's exploration of musical symmetry. Yeah. And so a, a lot of it, and yeah, that's sort of, the core argument of a lot of this is that like which tuning system makes the most like like so many things like when, when i we we did an episode about like notation and i did a video about notation on, around the same time and a lot of that too was just like you know the question is what do you want from it yeah what are you trying to do with notation and based on what your answer is like you're not going to do staff notation for midi programming probably yeah, it's really inefficient as a use of space, and it doesn't let you control as many parameters as easily. Like most staff notation programs, will convert it to MIDI yeah. and play you a thing. But like, 
if you really want to do MIDI programming, you're not going to do it in Sibelius or MuseScore. You're going to do it in like Ableton yeah. or Logic or Reason or whatever. Like those are those are the tools and those use Piano Roll because that's a better system for it. And similarly, like if you want to do giant steps, you're not going to do it in quarter comma mean tone. You're going to do it in equal temperament. So whereas, you know, if you want to do 1600s style stuff, yeah, I, I can't name any specific pieces from that era. I am. That is not my area of music. If you want to do sound like, you know, if you want to sound like you're in the style of like Palestrina, you probably don't want to use equal temperament. Like that's not that's not a good call. Even if you want to sound like in the style of Bach, like that's, that's probably not what he wanted you to do. And that's not what he was writing under the assumption that you would do. These things serve a different value and they have a different aesthetic purpose. And ultimately art is about aesthetic choices and viewing tuning systems as a set of tools that you can use to make those choices as opposed to a set of formulas that will tell you what the correct choice is, is I think a healthier way to approach it. Like I think is true with anything, right? Like, you know, we, I can't mathematically prove that the guitar is the best instrument. Yeah. Right. Like there are times where you want a trumpet. Um, I can't imagine why, but sorry, apologies to all trumpet players. I actually like you, uh, except, except for one of you. Um, they, they know who they are, but like, that's, that's just similarly, like, if you want to write a piece and you want to have an instrument playing the melody and you want to decide between the guitar and the trumpet, you have to know what the piece is to make yeah. that decision. And similarly, like there are plenty of reasons to play in quarter comma mean tone. There's plenty of reasons to play in Verkmeister three. Like there's, ah, that's a fun, that's a fun one. There is a tuning system called Verkmeister three. I don't know if you're just making things up at this point. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's fun about it is I'm not. What is Verkmeister 3? Verkmeister 3 is one of is a well temperament, uh, which is basically splitting the difference between traditional mean tone temperaments that tried to do just intonation basically, uh, but also it's splitting the difference between those and equal temperaments. So it's something where you can play in all 12 keys and they will all sound close enough to good in quotes based on just intonation philosophies of what good is. Um, but like, they're not all equal. Not all the steps are equal. They will still sound different. You've just sort of distributed the problems of just intonation across enough of the space that all of them basically work. And Verkmeister is just the name of a dude. Yeah, I figured that. He, he proposed a couple of those. As Andrea Verkmeister, I believe. But... That could be wrong. Google Verkmeister if you want to know more. It starts with a W because it's a German name. There are a lot of reasons to make a lot of those decisions. And, you know, and there are reasons to do like gamelan tuning too. Yeah. There's reasons to do, like we talked about, like macam tuning. There's reasons to do basically any type of, there's reasons to do like harsh noise tuning. Yeah. Like those are still valid tuning systems. And if you wanted to make harsh noise, but you were doing it with quarter comma mean tone, you'd be very restricted in terms of the things you could do in ways that are probably going to limit your ability to make harsh noise music very effectively. Well, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of these, you know, it gets, it gets into our, the eternal, like yeah. music theory is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Where yeah. a lot of these things, you know, you look at all these different tunings, you look at all these different cultural practices. These are things that, 
come about organically through the human desire to create and express. And then, you know, you know, and this is not this is not to say it's bad yeah. that we try to f- create frameworks and organize because also like, oh, it is. We should never <laughs> the, create frameworks. I, a music theorist, think that. Yeah. And also because like the desire to categorize and organize everything is just as human as the desire to, uh, you know, create uh, and express, yeah. right? Like, like the, yeah. these sorts of things, I think that's an important aspect to uh, consider too, is like these sorts of things, they are just as much of an, uh, of an expression of something that is deeply and innately profoundly human as art is. Yeah. It's just, these two human expressions, these two beautiful human expressions often end up being at odds with each other because they're trying to do different things. Yeah, and another point that I would highlight from related to that is that a lot of the times we don't necessarily know what things are going to do until we've already developed them. Yeah. I complained about people saying that equal temperament was a compromise earlier, but that's very much what it was in the 1700s. Like that was sort of, it was like people were narrowing in on it through like, you know, Pythagorean and then mean tone tuning and then like well temperaments. And then eventually you just get to the point where you're like, okay, we're just going to do them all the same. And that's just, that's so much easier. And like, it's all of them are going to be a little out of tune, but it's just going to be fine. And that was sort of, the philosophy more or less that led to that. And then you got the romantic era where people were like, wait a second, this lets us do so many more modulations. This lets us do so much more, so many more interesting things. And then that, you know, leads into 12-tone serialism. That's a complicated arc. It's not directly early romantics to 12-tone serialism. But like realizing that that symmetry was not just a compromise, it was its own aesthetic value, uh, was something that, became more and more apparent as people got more and more used to the system. And then, you know, you get things like bebop starting to happen once you're reaching the point where no one currently alive was there yeah. when European musicians first made this compromise. And these are people who just have learned these instruments as this setup and are starting to think like, okay, what else can we do with it? What are our other options? How can we play around with this even more? How can we push this even further? And how can we em- embrace this aesthetic value that we have kind of accidentally unearthed? And a lot of the way that music develops is that sort of thing where people invent something and then, like, you know, the drum machine was invented. To, to let people play drums yeah. without having a drummer. That was the whole point of the drum machine. No one who like was involved in that process could ever have conceived, and not could ever, but no one who was involved in that process really did conceive of what Jay Dillo was yeah. going to do with a drum machine. The trumpet was invented to be a loud blaring instrument that is a you know like it it, it was an instrument of war nobody could have predicted miles davis right like nobody could have predicted that the smoothest sounds you would ever hear in your life would come out of it (laughs) yeah and like you know and even like trumpet mute yeah like that whole thing was not around when trumpets first started 
And so you couldn't have yeah. done a lot of what Miles Davis did. But like, yeah, a lot of that is sort of people being creative with the tools they have. And so there being just a lot of value in giving people as many tools as you can and then seeing what they do with it. I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's the big thing to kind of bring us back to back on track with that is when you exist in a world where you're like, this is the proper way, you know, yeah. this is the proper tuning system, then you're closing off all of the doors for people to play around and experiment with other systems and discover things that, yeah. you know, I'm sure there are, you know, what's the giant steps of Gamelon tuning? I don't know, but that sounds know, amazing, yeah. right? <laughs> like, yeah, it probably already exists. Yeah, like, yeah. Related to that, like, I do want to acknowledge, like, part of the central issue of this, especially with tuning, that there's a lot of convenience in having a standard, right? Like, there's a reason that every piano at the, like, music school I went to played equal temperament. Yeah. And it's because that way, you know, you can just sit down and play. Yes. And you'll get the notes. And you can, especially for something like where, you know, it might vary by instrument, there's a lot of value in having your piano player be able to trust that the guitarist will also be playing the same notes. Yeah. Or at least if they're not, they'll be doing it intentionally. And there's a lot of value to, to like somewhere that has recitals for everyone yeah. who comes in to be able to sit down and know that when they play, it's going to sound the same as the piano that they're playing yeah. at home. Yeah. And there's this, there's a lot of value because it's such a, because tuning is one of those things that's built into instruments and it's built into like tools too. Like when I talked about MIDI programming, like piano roll assumes 12 tone equal temperament. And depending on the program, it might let you adjust to a different 12 note tuning system. But if you want to do something like, you know, macam tunings where you might need a lot more notes per octave, potentially, it becomes very hard to give yourself that space because the yeah. tool isn't built for it in ways that then I think, you know, makes sense to complain about, you know, I, I think that's part of the complaint about equal temperament is that it's become so, so ubiquitous and so many of our tools are built on the assumption that that's what you're doing that it does become harder to do other things. Yeah. And so that that's also sort of the flip side of it. And like, I recognize that that is additionally a complication and that that is, you know, it's one of those things like, again, it's sort of hard to solve because there is a lot of value in having a standard. Like that yeah. is, that is just a very useful thing. And so it's not like the solution to this is to make every instrument be able to play every possible note and every possible pitch in every tuning system. That's just not realistic. It's not feasible. I just want to see the harmonica that can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, but you have these, these issues where you just, you have to make choices. And once you make choices, like this is again, going back to like the notation thing, a lot of that isn't so much a question of what the system makes possible. It's what the system makes easy. Yeah. Right. Like I, I do when I do like tuning theory videos, I, I use my same MIDI programmer that still uses its 12 tone equal temperament piano roll. I just I know how to use the tuning wheel in order to get that. I know how to program it to get me at it to give me the pitches I need. But I still need to to do that programming. I still need to make that work in a way that like if I just want an equal tempered 
g to an equal tempered b that's so many fewer button clicks yeah and it's it's so much simpler for me to do and so a lot of that i think is and again like i don't know what the what the solution is because it's not like it's not something like i said we can't we need a standard oh, need is a strong word there is value in a standard there's a lot of practical and utilitarian value in assuming that musicians will be playing in the same tuning system unless yeah. they have agreed otherwise. And, you know, for jams too, like, you know, you show up to a jam session, uh, it's, you know, helpful to assume that the piano is not playing in like mean tone if you are yeah. planning to play <laughs> in equal temper. That just allows for so much more collaboration if you don't have to communicate about these things first. But, you know, that's a trade-off. I, th I think very much the point of what we do here with a lot of this stuff is often not not to find an answer, but just to yeah. just just to explore ideas and explore that yeah. there are alternative ways of engaging with and creating music uh, out there, you know, like because I, I don't know, there's so much value in just thinking about it. Yeah, I guess like the, the takeaway would be like if you haven't considered playing around with the tuning of your instruments in your music maybe consider it. And if you have yeah. considered it and reached an answer you're happy with, cool. I love Good that for form. you. Yeah. Go with that. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. Like if that's letting you make the music that you want to make in a way that sounds good by whatever aesthetic values you attach to the word good to you. That's, that's all I want. Yeah. That's not all I want. I want other things too, but they don't relate to your music. So, <laughs> so you can get out of the way. Yeah, there's not not really not really much you could do on this. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's I think that's as good a place as any to uh, to call it an episode. Unless you had any yeah. more urgent esoteric no. tuning thoughts that you needed to get out. I have so many more esoteric tuning thoughts, <laughs> but um, but none are urgent. None are urgent. Go watch any random twelve tone video. There's like a twenty five percent chance it's going to be about tuning. So. <laughs> If you want more of my thoughts, they're there. And if yeah. you want to, my thoughts, go watch Corey's videos too, because I just steal all my <laughs> thoughts from Corey. That's probably wise. I do have the best thoughts. I Famously. Yeah. That's why they gave you a podcast. They don't just give podcasts <laughs> no. to anybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye. All right. Bye.